2006, Peter Apps was living the life he felt he was meant to lead and what he had worked towards for several years. He was a 25-year-old journalist and had just spent the last two years on assignment with Reuters in Southern Africa. On September the 5th, 2006, Peter was in Sri Lanka at the height of the Civil War. Whilst travelling on a main road across the Eastern Front, his minibus was involved in a horrific head-on collision with a tractor. Peter broke his neck. He thought his life was over and at times he wished it was. In fact, he was paralysed from the shoulders down. In this powerful episode, Peter explains how he overcame this life-defining moment, how he was back at work inside a year, his determination not to let his disability define him, his work with the British Army and setting up a think tank, as well as his efforts to stand as a candidate for Labour in Vauxhall, where he now lives. Peter's story is truly remarkable, and yet another example of the inspirational Londoners who make up our beautiful city. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London legacy. Well, today sees me in Vauxhall. I'm not sure the, what is it, what's the key we at? The wharf, where are we? Uh, St. George Wharf. St. George Wharf. It's a place I'm sort of familiar with, um, but just for the benefit of our, our listeners, we are outside the Vauxhall station. And today I'm really pleased to say I'm in the company of Peter Apps, who is a journalist by profession, global correspondent for global, Reu- affairs, commentator. global affairs commentator for Reuters. Uh, he is a sometime in the army, mm. I think for the army reservists. That's right. Yeah. Who provides advice to the army. And he also set up a think tank as well. Is it a political think tank or a global it's a, thinking it's an think tank? It's a political think tank. So apolitical. It's, um, yeah. The idea is that it's uh, non, non-governmental, non-ideological and a little bit feral. <laughs> feral being a little bit sort of what? Wild off the charts, sort of just wild off the charts, and with very little money. So essentially, we're we're dependent on borrowing expertise and space from from other people and organisations, universities, bars, that kind of thing, to hold our events. Uh huh. Okay. So Peter is a is a fascinating and very interesting character. How old are you, Peter? I forgot to ask you. Uh, I'm thirty eight. Thirty eight. Now we're going to touch upon this in a little bit more detail uh, in a while, and Peter's quite happy, I think, to talk about. I think it's fair to say a life-changing moment because Peter was a correspondent out in Sri Lanka covering the war in Sri Lanka. That's right, yes. Yeah, 13 years ago. 13 years ago this September. When Peter suffered a, a, a seriously life-changing traumatic incident when he was involved in a in a car crash. Yeah, I mean, my, I was on a reporting trip in eastern Sri Lanka. I'd been based there just under a year uh, and my minibus wrapped itself around a tractor on the eastern front. And Not the sort of thing you anticipate when, when you're in a war zone. You probably thought you're more likely to be hit by a missile. Or, well, or, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, th- I was sort of, I, I thought I was, you know, I nearly got killed in all kinds of interesting and glamorous ways. Uh-huh. Um, and then eventually, yeah, it's a tractor that does for you. So um, it's, it's su- somewhat lacking in, in, in the requisite sex and glamour, but it was, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I woke up completely paralysed and it was pretty obvious what had happened. That's a, it's a hell of a story. I mean, we will touch on that in a, in a bit more detail because obviously it is a life-defining moment. I, I don't know, if you think about your life as like before and after that particular event, is that something you think about? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I do quite a lot. So I was twenty-five when I was injured. So I mean, I I've been thinking about this a lot this year. It's twenty years this year since I came to London as an eighteen-year-old student. And when I came to London, I'd you know I'd been to an independent school in in, in Brentwood in Essex. I'd grown up in villages and towns just outside London. And the reason I wanted to come to London was that I wanted to get stuck into adult life as quickly as I could. So I came to London and I did two things pretty much immediately as well as going to university. I started applying for work experience at newspapers and I joined the Army Reserve as a uh, officer cadet. And the truth is, I mean, those, those sort of two tracks have kind of kept me going through the rest of my life ever since. So, I mean, I don't, 
you know, I don't feel, you know, my, there is definitely a lot of continuity. You know, I spent, what, four years in London, five years in London, you know, wanting to get out and go overseas. I went, I joined Reuters at 21, well, I was hired at 21, joined at 22, overseas at 23 in Southern Africa, then Sri Lanka at 24, and then paralyzed at 25, and then found myself back here at the age of 26, and I've been back here ever since. So wow. kind of, there's a degree of continuity, but obviously it is a... Uh, a fairly large kind of roadblock to get your head around. Yeah, sure. So I want to talk to you about the accident and how that's impacted your life, your mental well-being, your physical, you know, how it's changed changed you as a person, shall we say, and your, your outlook on life. Because you, you, from the reading and research I've done, you're a person who has, you know, strong views on, on fairness and you're highly politically aware on world events and you're a man of integrity, shall we say, I think it's fair to say. So, <laughs> it's not very nice of you to say so. I'm not sure all would agree, but yes. It's, uh... Well, we'll find out. <laughs> so I want to start off maybe by going back a little bit into your into your early days. You say you grew up in London. Well, grew up just outside. Just, so, out, just so, outside. So, uh, my first five years were in North Kent uh, in a uh, lovely, if incredibly small, two-bedroom cottage, which for a family of five was quite something. Uh, and then in a village in uh, South Essex, basically between Thurrock and Brentwood. I know it. Yes, know it well. Okay. And as a as a boy growing up, um, you went to school. Obviously, you had happy school days. You were you were bright educationally. What, what were your aspirations? So I mean, I, I so I mean, I, I'm, I'm I read very fast, which I think is is a good way of of appearing bright. Um, How do you read fast? Is that a skill you taught yourself, or is that... I mean, I've always been able to read fast since I was like seven or eight. Well, so, what, what does that actually mean? You read fast. I mean, it, I mean, it means that even if I'm getting someone to turn pages, I can get through a sort of you know a, a decent sort of book, say you know two or three, you know, three or four centimeters thick in a matter of you know a couple of hours. Seriously, wow. So, uh, which is which I think is not the same as being bright, but does mean that you, but but it's but it probably allows you to get away. If with you're it absorbing the information, it's not just cursory glance at it. I mean, if you're taking it all in, I mean, I think I probably so I think that that helped me. As yeah. Um, I mean, I wanted to do, you know, like a lot of kids, you know, I read a bunch of sort of books at six, seven, eight that were about people doing interesting stuff in the adult world. And therefore, I wanted not to be a kid anymore. And I wanted to do stuff in the adult world. Um, I was, I, what I really wanted to do when I was sort of 13, 14, 15, 16 was join the Royal Navy. Uh, but I was too blind to do that. So that meant I was looking for, for other things that would interest. Um, I've always been interested in stories. I mean, I was during the Gulf War in 91 when I was, would have been, nine uh -huh. um i was listening to the radio and writing a small newspaper for my parents with biro which means that i feel i haven't really moved on at all really since then because that's essentially what i've been <laughs> doing full circle well essentially <laughs> what i'm doing my entire adult life but it so i was interested i was interested in the world and when i got to london i just wanted to find some way that i would kind of you know, get get sight of that be part of that and i could have joined the military but the truth is you know i also started doing interesting work for for newspapers and then the early dot coms and then that uh, then I, I got lucky and got offered a job with Reuters when I was 21. Mm. What were you doing with the dot-coms? So I worked for in uh, Old Street at the very beginning of the dot-com boom, sort of 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, for a firm called Dr. Foster um, that was started by a couple of ex-journalists and was very early work on hospital data. So we did a Sunday Times Good Hospital Guide. Oh, I'm uh, familiar with them through a friend. I think they're still going, aren't they? They are still going, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they... they um, I mean, the, 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 you know, in terms of bringing data to the National Health Service and, yes. and, and, and bringing a degree of accountability, um, it was actually really interesting work. And certainly for an 18, 19-year-old, I took a year out to do that full-time my second year. That was fascinating. You know, I was 19 and suddenly I was in, you know, high-level meetings with hospital trusts and, you know, the Department of Health and uh, producing newspaper supplements. And that was fascinating. Mm. 
and then you say so you moved into Reuters. That you just had a wanted to get into. Well, I, I knew that um, my my folks are doctors, and they'd made it relatively clear that they weren't going to be in the business of funding me after I'd left university. Um, and it was even then it was fairly clear that the career track into journalism was either a very expensive postgraduate degree or work experience for two or three years. So I decided that I would try and the, you know, the advantage of being in London is that I could do those two or three years work experience while I was at university. And by the time I came out at twenty one, I had you know a business card. Three and a half years with um, you know dot coms and newspapers, and uh, three years with with the Army Reserve, um, and I think that probably helped get me through a very competitive process in the Reuters interview process. Reuters back then was taking twelve graduate trainees, probably out of about twelve hundred fifteen hundred applicants. They required everyone to speak two languages. My French was appalling, um, but I think I had just enough in the way of sort of media and other skills to to manage to make the cut, and and uh, and they took me on. And what was your first role? Do you recall? Well, so the first role was a, the, the graduate training program at Reuters, which still exists in a slightly different form, um, is that you do a year in London where they move you from desk to desk. So, you know, and they, they, there's a lot of classroom training. So probably about 10 weeks classroom training where you are in, you know, sim, you're a simulated bureau in a country covering everything from bomb attacks to IMF meetings to bond auctions to companies going bankrupt. I mean, they really give you the full range. Uh, and then moving from desk to desk. So I did oil reporting. I did commodities reporting. I did sport reporting. Uh, I did UK general news reporting. Uh, we did ed- editing stuff on the main world desk. Um, and so that meant that by the time you'd finished your first year, you had a bit of experience of just about everything. And then they sent me to Johannesburg to essentially put that into practice as the most junior guy in the newsroom there. What What was the role? What was your remit in Johannesburg? What were you covering over there? So, I mean, I was particularly, I mean, I, essentially as the most junior person, I was also the most mobile person. So I was the person who got sent out the door fastest to things, which is fascinating. Um, so I got all over Southern Africa, everything south of Congo. I did a hemorrhagic fever outbreak in Angola. I did an election in Botswana. Um, I did food shortages in Malawi, Mozambique, Zambia. You know, I mean, I, was, I got all over. It was fascinating. I was also the soft commodities reporter. So I was responsible for the grain market. Um, I did bits of macroeconomic reporting covering um, uh, interest rate decisions and inflation reports and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was fascinating. I got to work with an really amazing group of reporters so i mean if you i mean this is this would have been 2004 five so d- d- 10 years after the end of apartheid so there was still quite a lot and still are of the you know uh, reporters of, of various racial origins who'd done really tough reporting in the townships and who'd really seen south africa's transformation and i found that i mean i just found it fascinating i mean i, I would have happily have stayed there forever it was really you know, I, and, and I felt that you could it also, I mean, I learned a lot about, you know, reporting stories that can make a difference, a lot of humanitarian reporting. Yeah, I mean, it was, of all the years of my life, it was without doubt my sort of the high point, I think. Well, South Africa. More, more South than, Africa, more, 2004 to five. Yeah, more, um, than, more than your subsequent period in Sri Lanka, which we'll go on to next. Well, so then, I mean, I wasn't moved entirely by choice to Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, the, the the job was up in Joburg. Someone else was supposed to be coming out to replace me. So I wanted to stay in the field overseas. And the only job that was available was a job on in Sri Lanka on local pay. So I went from being on decent graduate pay yeah, in Joburg I, to just over $10 a day in Sri Lanka. What, why was that? Why would they not pay you the, go, the going rate for a journalist over that there? That was the going rate for a journalist right. over there. Um, <laughs> if you think, yeah, so I was, I was, I mean, I was, I, I took a job that would otherwise have gone to a local Sri Lankan reporter, and I was therefore paid accordingly, uh-huh. um, which I don't necessarily have a huge problem with, but did bring with it a rather drastic adjustment in living standards, as you can probably imagine. But that wasn't what made Sri Lanka a more bittersweet experience. I mean, when I when I arrived in Sri Lanka, it was fairly most people thought the ceasefire was going to hold. The foreign minister, who was the most senior Tamil in government, had been shot a few weeks before. 
Because this was right in the middle of the, of the war. Well, no, this was right in the middle of the ceasefire. The ceasefire. So everyone thought the war was over. And when I got there... Well, was the it real... an official ceasefire at that point? Or was it just yes. like a... Yes. I mean, so to, to, to paraphrase Sri Lankan history incredibly briefly, the war first started in 1983, went, ran on and off until 2002, when there was a ceasefire that most people assumed had ended it. Essentially, in the aftermath of 9-11, the Americans made it very clear they were going to have no tolerance for you know, quite a lot of stuff. And a lot of wars came to an end. Angola was one of them. Sri Lanka was another. So the Tigers were very worried they would end up on the receiving end of the war on terror. The government was on its knees economically after a bunch of attacks. And so both sides decided they were going to have a ceasefire. And most people assumed that ended the war permanently. By the time I arrived, it was just after the 2004 tsunami. Um, so there was still a ceasefire. There was a sort of shadow war going on between a government-backed group of ex-rebels and the mainstream Tamil Tigers. Because that was my recollection. Although there was a ceasefire, there was still a lot of trouble going on, which wasn't widely reported. Well, I mean, it was... We put a lot of effort into reporting it, but it really was very compared to compared to what followed. It was it was really small beans. We were talking about occasional assassinations, um, and when I arrived there, the wheels started to come off quite quickly. There was an election that was essentially boycotted by the rebels, which brought in a hardline president who was determined to defeat them. And then they started blowing stuff up. They started blowing stuff up in the north and east military patrols, and they started blowing stuff up in the capital. So the year I was in Sri Lanka was a year where Sri Lanka ripped itself apart. When I arrived there, most people thought it was going to be fine. And by the end, people in the frontline areas, particularly ethnic Tamils, thought that they might, they and their children might die in a horrific end game to the war, which is exactly and, what happened. And was this your first experience of being in the middle of troubles or, or, or violence? I mean, you might have seen some in the townships, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, there were, there, were, there were township riots. And, you know, I did a lot of post-conflict reporting in places like Angola, where, you know, and I, and I, I, I mean, in some ways, some of the stuff I saw in Southern Africa... Uh, HIV, serious malnutrition, was as distressing as anything that I saw in Sri Lanka. But yes, as in, ter as in terms of actual high-intensity conflict, I hadn't done that before. I'd never been in a firefight before. I'd never been, you know, I'd never heard a bomb go off. Uh, and I don't, I think I'd seen maybe one dead body. Um, and Sri Lanka, I got, you know, all of that in spades. Wow. And how did you adapt to that? Never really found out. I broke my neck. Um, in truth, um, you know, I mean, I think I adapted to it pretty well in uh -huh. the sense of doing the job properly. Uh, you know, I think, you know, leading teams of local staff was a great privilege. And I think I did it pretty well. I don't think I took unnecessary risks. And I think the stories I wrote made a real difference. Um, I mean, there were occasions where we, uh, where, um, you know, I wrote about extrajudicial killings and the killings would stop for a bit. So, you know, where reporting could actually save lives. Uh, or just simply just hold people to account for things they've done. There was a massacre of aid workers that I covered that I think would have been forgotten otherwise. Yeah, so I, I think I did pretty well, and I think I was good at it. And I think, you know, luckily, as it happened, by the time I broke my neck, I'd carved out a reputation as one of the sort of bright and up-and-coming foreign correspondents to watch, which, without which I doubt I've been able to continue my career afterwards. And how were you as a journalist? How were, how were you welcomed amongst the, the locals in Sri Lanka, for example? Well, I mean, Reuters takes its freedom from bias between conflict very seriously. So, um, I mean, there weren't a lot of other people there, certainly not a lot of foreigners. So most of the times where I was somewhere nasty, I was the only foreigner who'd be there. It would sometimes be some aid workers, but once things got really nasty, there weren't, you know, weren't even people like that around at all. So, I mean, people are just glad that someone's turning up to bear witness in truth. You know, that, you know, something horrific has happened. They would rather the world knew, and the fact that you're there was a sign of that. In, in essence, so, you know, and providing you were regarded as fair by both sides, and I think I was, I mean, after I broke my neck, I got best wishes from the Tigers and Flowers and the President, so I think I did walk that line, and that felt the right thing to do. I mean, I never felt tempted to take 
one side or the other. So, you know, that, you know, I mean, they were, you know, A, because they were both as unpleasant each other and B, because that, in fact, wasn't the job. Um, so I think, I mean, I found it fascinating. I learned a huge amount as to whether, as to what extent I sort of processed the, the, the nastier elements of it. I don't think I ever really got the chance to do that in truth, because, you know, in the middle of all of this, I, I, I broke my neck and wound up in a, in, in another different hole. So how long had you been out there when you had the accident? I think it was in September, wasn't it? That about year, 2006. So, so really, I've been, been overseas just over two years. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd been in Sri Lanka since I think October. So yes, it would have been yeah exactly 11 months or so. Right. So if you cast your mind back to that fateful day in September, 2006, what, what do you recall of it? Where, where, where were you heading? So we were doing a story on the Eastern Front about child soldier recruitment by a government-backed group. Yeah, I kind of figured that the eyes of the world were on us at that stage. The war had literally just restarted, or the land, the ground war had literally just restarted. So people cared about Sri Lankan news in a way that they they were probably going to care less in the future and had less in the past. So it seemed a good chance to write that story. And yeah, I mean, I think there was an element which I thought by telling that story we could achieve a degree of effect. So minibus turned up at around sort of four in the morning. You know, drove up, you know, to the, the you know towards the the eastern front, and the last thing I remember is crossing it a bridge towards the sort of frontline area. And then I woke up and I could tell the engine was got the engine noise was gone. The windscreen was gone and my face was on the dashboard and I couldn't move anything below my neck. Mm. So, I mean, fairly obvious what I'd done, I'm afraid. Were there other passengers in the vehicle with you? Yeah. Driver, TV cameraman, photographer. So once I'd kind of gauged what had happened to me, I called out for them. My voice was pretty weak because I'd lost not just the ability to move, but also most of, most of my ability to, to move my lungs. Uh, my photographer told me we'd had a crash. I told him I'd broken my neck. Uh, and you know, then we gradually, by then a bunch of soldiers and villagers had turned up and we got on with lifting me out of the vehicle, laying me by the side of the road and phoning up my boss in Colombo to you know, try and find a way to get me back home. I mean, I mean, it's it's just remarkable. I've seen the photograph of you laying on the, the side of the, well, the roadside by the looks of it. I'm guessing that's close to the vehicle. Well, it had to be because with, with the, you in it had to be because bits of the other part. Because if you went further than that, some of it might have been mined. Right. So this was a front so you, were, line. so you were right close to the, the the front line. I mean, there was no front line there in that sort of sense. Not a defined front line, but, but close but to yes, the front I mean, where this the was, was a this was an exposed road that one did not generally drive at night. For example, uh-huh. we drove it in the day. This the accident occurred in the daytime. So do you know, actually actually know what happened? Did did a tractor pull out from a local field, or did your driver just lose control? Or? I mean, I I don't know. I spoke about this, but I did. I heard people. I had policemen and so forth talking about this, and, and other people. So the two stories I heard: one is that we overtook one vehicle and slammed into another, and the uh-huh. other was the driver fell asleep. Your driver, yes, I mean, right. which is entirely plausible. Uh-huh. How long had you been travelling? Uh, we'd started at this accident was about nine thirty, and we'd started at about we'd started in the dark from Colombo at about half four five a.m. I mean, it was a you know, I mean, you know, hire a driver who we didn't control. Didn't you didn't know. know the driver. No, I mean, no. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd rather not get into. No, no, I don't yeah. want to go into the legal side of it. Exactly. I know there's been a, yeah, okay. So you've had this accident. You're laying, you're laying in the in the street, or you're laying in the vehicle, and you got taken well, out of the vehicle. vehicle. We, we, yeah. we were out on a sort of patch of sort of fairly, you know, br- you know brushland between the two front lines, basically. Um, so, so how long was it before people came around to try and help and support you? I mean, I think they were there by the time I got lifted out of the vehicle. So I don't know how long I was unconscious for. I mean, there's, you know, the nearest, I mean, I knew that area of the front line pretty well. So the nearest patrol base would probably only have been five or 600 meters away. Um, and there would have been other traffic on the road. So I imagine that's where the people I remember came from. Yeah. I mean, obviously I couldn't get up and look around, but I mean, it's, it's fairly clear to me what happened. So they were lying by the side of the road. Um, you know, it was quite keen to 
get, I mean, I'm, luckily I had my satellite phone in my pocket, uh, which meant if it had been in the back of the vehicle, I don't think we would necessarily be able to find it because my crew was fairly bashed up. Um, but that meant we were able to get on the phone to my boss in Colombo. Um, he phoned the Sri Lanka Defence Secretary and started trying to negotiate a helicopter and he also phoned my parents. Uh, I mean, I could have done that myself, but I really didn't want to. And I sort of lay there thinking, well, I wonder what my life's going to look like from here. Did you did you know pretty much immediately when you gained consciousness that you... you, you were you, I think you're paralysed, aren't you, from the shoulders down? Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. more paralysed then by quite a long way. I couldn't uh-huh. move my head at all, for example. So, I mean, the way it works with a spinal cord injury is C1 and 2, the first two vertebrae, so the first two cervical vertebrae. If you lose them, that's a hangman's break, so you can't breathe. You'll only survive that if paramedics reach you in about two minutes, which mm-hmm. is why people who are like that are often jockeys and people who... You know, three, four, five, you're talking about you know massive loss of lung control. Loss of your shoulders, you couldn't move. I couldn't move my arms. I, you know, some of that's then got better, some of it hasn't. But yes, I mean, it, uh, my neck hurt and I couldn't move. So it took me about, I mean, you know, I don't remember a conscious moment of realisation, if that makes sense. I, I went from being awake to realising I'd broken my neck in, in you know, probably you know, some it, two seconds. But you, re- you noticed fairly quickly that you couldn't physically move. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I woke up. I mean, I literally woke up, thought, fuck, I've broken my neck. Yeah. So what was going through your mind? We, we, I mean, were you thinking... Well, my next, I've broken my neck. My life's over, or well, it, it depends what you mean by my life's over. Because I thought, firstly, my life's over. I don't really want to survive. My second thought was actually, I could well be dying anyway. You know, I could well have catastrophic internal injuries. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, and I wouldn't know because I can't feel them. Yeah, my instinct was that I probably didn't, but but you know, I thought it was entirely possible if I was lifted out of the vehicle, I would just that would be it. Uh, but I can't. Kind of, but you know, that you know, I mean, either it was or it wasn't. Like, you know, I mean, the truth is, yeah, you know, having thought about it for a few minutes and got quite upset over it. You know, you realise that you couldn't stay there all day. And I wanted to get back to where there were sort of bleeping lights and doctors knew what they were doing. And I was going to have to do that myself, you know, with the support from other people, or I wasn't. And I wanted to do it under as controlled a way as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, in truth. I mean, you know, I, I had a sort of vision then that it's sort of, oh, God, I'm going to end up in my parents' living room and that we, you know, I'll never do anything interesting again. Mm. Which, but, for, which for a young man who's just making his way in an active career... Must have been pretty devastating. Well, there was also the other end of it, because I remember my boss saying, my boss was very, very upset, obviously, saying down the phone, you know, it'll be fine, it'll be better, you know, you'll get, you know, you'll be back having a pint with us in the Gore Face, which is the (laughs) the, coastline hotel in Colombo. And I was saying, yes, but through an effing straw. And so the other side, we thought, well, actually, you know, know, I I mean, if I am going to be this disabled, then I can, then I'll just just have to keep doing the same things. But, well, you know, at least I'll, I'll, but, with the very large caveat that I suspected the world wasn't going to make that very easy. But, you know, there was a sort of left and right of arc that was sort of right, well, okay, I mean, you know, A, yes, you're, you're paralysed. B, brain still works fine. If I can avoid being stuck in a living room, then, you know, providing enough support, then then I could probably continue doing a lot of what I've been doing. And you doing. were having these, these thoughts and these emotions right from the beginning, very early on. Yeah, I mean, certainly, but certainly by the roadside. That's amazing to have. That. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there was a lot of sort of how how do I get yeah the lot a lot of the raw logistics. Um, but to know, think so clearly and rationally in such a traumatic situation is is quite remarkable. I would have thought. I would have thought most people who, who you know suffer a road accident or whatever you know traumatic accident will be thinking shit you know just just get me out of here just i want to be well you know i mean i mean the truth is don't forget the mindset i was in at the time we were expecting trouble you know we you know we 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 you know the crew i was with we'd been caught up in an ambush a few yeah you know, we you know, you know, i i you know i 
you know, we were doing what we could. So even min- then, at the back of your mind, was the possibility of, you know, you being subject of an attack, perhaps? Well, no, or, no. Or, or, I mean, my initial thought was that it had been an attack. I mean, you know, yeah, so I you mean, weren't even aware you'd hit you'd hit a tractor. Well, I found that out pretty quickly. But yeah. my, you know, but you know, I mean, by the nature of, you know, we'd had a bomb outside my office. We'd had, a, yeah, I mean, you know, we'd had a lot of run-ins. Right. In a, yeah, it was not a safe place yeah. to. You know, my boss had been on the had airstrikes coming down within, you know, not that far from me. So you know, we when I set off that morning, you know, we'd loaded up body armor, we'd loaded up a first aid kit, and I was in a mindset that you know, if we hit trouble, we will deal with it. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, and uh, so that. Yeah, that wasn't. Yeah, that, that yeah that yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I hadn't expected that. So you know, expected some sort of trouble, but not quite what transpired that day. Well, I mean, I expected that we were going to be managing risk continuously. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, and because you know who you talk to, where you go, which road you go down, all of those were risk judgments mm. that I mean, I took with you know, advice from particularly experienced local journalists who are with me, um, and also just sort of my experience and guts. But yeah, I mean, the truth is that you know it was a three-day frontline reporting trip. You know, in the middle of a war zone, so you know, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, that 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 was the mindset I was in when I got in the vehicle, and I, I guess I was still in the mindset afterwards, and I kind of felt that you. Know, the other thing I noticed is that when I did briefly say that I wasn't sure I wanted to live, it really upset my crew, and that wasn't going to work for me very well. Did you, did need, you mean that? Yeah, because that? I needed because I need, because I needed to get they I needed them to get me home. Uh-huh. If that makes sense, so it's kind of right. Okay. I mean, you. Know, I mean, when I was, I mean, I've written about this before. When I got to the first, the second hospital, and I had, a, I had a very clear thought that was, oh, the jumpy men with guns are going to go away now, and I may not get them around again. And I um, told one of the doctors treating me that I was faking. I had a grenade in my pocket because I wanted to see if they would shoot me. <laughs> um, but because I was also very aware of not being able to kill myself, the, the ability to, to end your own life is just something that you're continuously. I think that most people could see it. Certainly, you you miss it when it's gone. You miss it when it's gone a lot. And yeah, I found I found that it wasn't that I wanted. I mean, I, I, I was. It was less that I wanted to die, and more that I was very aware I'd lost the ability to end my life. If I wanted to that I might be trapped alive in a way I did not like, and that felt extremely alarming. In some ways, a lot more alarming. Than if I'd felt, oh, actually, you know, I'm bleeding out. This is you. Know, I mean, I, I'd squared with the fact that the job, you, know, you don't do a job like that without knowing that your luck might run out. But I hadn't. I mean, I think one of the first thoughts I had was, I have not thought this through properly, because I had assumed that either I would survive or very, very, very unlikely, but you know, be killed and doing something I thought was worthwhile, which was you know, you could. You could- Tolerate that, but you couldn't tolerate the, the fact that you, well, I, you, you I lost your freedom thought, to kill yourself. But I thought that I hadn't. But, but I, thought, <laughs> yeah, I have found the third way, and like many third ways, it doesn't feel as you know, as satisfying as it sounds. Yeah. Um. You know. So you know, that I that I was you know potentially trapped outside a life that I would find valuable, but also trapped in it, it trapped trapped in a life that I couldn't get out of. Um. And I that was a fear that persisted for you know. A while until I realised that I was in a position where actually I, I mean, when I got back to the UK, one of my first questions to the surgeon was, "Will I be able to drive a wheelchair like this?" Mm-hmm. And he said yes. At which stage I thought, "Oh, that's okay then," because I could probably, so if I if I can if I had that degree of autonomy, then I probably could do something if I needed to. And then you park it. The thing that to me it sounds like the thing that worried you most, concerned you the most, was your potential lack of ability to make decisions for yourself whether you know whether to live or die or your mode well, of transportation so that, 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 but there's a lot of stuff that falls down from that 
So, um, I mean, that was a big deal. The second is, you know, can I possibly have any form of life that I find, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I found those two years overseas incredibly rewarding. I wanted my life to stay that rewarding. And I wanted to try and find ways of doing it. It wasn't very clear that that was going to be an option. You know, I didn't, didn't want to come back to the UK. You know, I, I, you know, I'd left the UK because I wanted to travel the world. You know, so there was a bunch of stuff that down from that. A bunch of stuff about personal life. I mean, I was, my personal life was quite complicated at the time. The, the woman I was seeing had a boyfriend. And I remember sort of thinking, well, that, okay, so he's probably won this round. That's not going to work. But also thinking, well, okay. And, you know, and again, you realize pretty quickly. And I think I'd had all these realizations before I got to the, you know, to the first hospital. That you know, either you either you have a virtuous circle where things work, or you have a, the opposite where they don't. And things like relationships, jobs, everything else, either they would they were most likely to either come together, or not, or or none of them were going to come, and I would be in a position that I would struggle to get out of. Sure. Out of interest, how did the doctors respond when you said you got a, you got a grenade in your pocket? I mean, very well, incredibly well. So I mean, a he didn't believe me. B they did cut the number of people working on me a bit while they cut my clothes off. Um, the jumpy men with guns went a bit further away. He explained to me, which I hadn't realised, that some people do get better after being paralysed. A single spinal shock is just bruising. You know, some people get up and walk around after two days. I mean, I you know, it didn't happen to me, but I yeah, you know, that was that sort of you know ameliorated my worry a bit. He was incredibly good. He was probably a very young doctor, probably late twenties, in a um, you know in a very small Sri Lankan hospital. I mean, the other thing I was very I spent a lot of time in these hospitals because I'd spent most of the last couple of months, a lot of it in the field sitting in hospitals like this, watching the ambulances coming in with wounded people and then interviewing wounded people to find out what's going on. So, you know, I kind of, you know, as I came in, there was a bunch of, you know, Sri Lankan local photographers out there sort of taking photographs. And, you know, I'd been part of that press pack a few. Yeah, I mean, I remember as I, as I arrived in the hospital in Colombo later that day, my boss was quite irritated by that and sort of shouted, you know, sort of have a heart. It's one of, you know, it's one of your own. And I sort of went, well, I don't really don't think we can take them. You know, yeah. 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 I don't think we can take the moral hike. You know, it's fine. Yeah. We've been doing, you know, we've been doing this until yesterday. You know, I, I had no particular problem with it. You know, it, um, and indeed, you know, there's a, the reason I have, there are pictures of what happened is because people typically, I have no problem with people documenting it at all. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that was, you know, there was a lot going on. Interestingly, I mean, look, actually with the picture, one of the pictures here, there's a picture of you laying down on the roadside. This is presumably very moments after it happened when you've been removed from the vehicle. And you've got someone's either putting on or securing a neck brace to you. Yes, so that's probably about 40 minutes to an hour. That's actually a US demining team who were... Who just happened to be passing. Well, they were, they were, some, they were working somewhere else on a landmine clearance project when a, someone came up to them on a motorcycle and said, there's a dead white guy by the road. Is he one of yours? And they went to find out. And they had a neck collar. We didn't have one in our first aid kit, so I was quite lucky in that respect. And do you, do you know, looking back, if that had any significant bearing on the out- outcome of your injury to support your neck? Probably not. It wasn't a very right. good neck collar. Right. I mean, the, the the reason that spinal cord spinal cord injuries have a massively higher rate of recovery in the UK and other developed countries from what they did, and it's because roadside care is very very good, full body stretches, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Didn't have any of that. Mm. I mean, I suspect. You know, high-speed crash, no working seatbelt. I suspect my neck was pulped from the get-go. But um, there's no doubt that, you know, I was briefly in an ambulance afterwards being bounced around. That probably did me no good at all. Um, you know, it, yeah. you know, the, you know, so, I mean, I, you know, it, it, there's, there's a limited amount of how much one wants to sort of probe into it. But, yeah, I mean, I suspect, I suspect the damage was pretty catastrophic yeah. pretty much immediately. Yeah. So what was the process for getting out of Sri Lanka and flying you back home? I mean, getting to Colombo was more complex than I'd related, but we'll move on from that now. So I did two weeks in Colombo General, a sort of you know, large Victorian imperial 
slum hospital in Colombo, government hospital. Yeah, sort of various noises made by my bosses. Should we take him to a good private center? No. In Sri Lanka, when the president gets blown up by a suicide bomber, they go to Colombo General and they do really good stuff. You know, it's pretty limited and, you know, the food is not recommended, as the nursing staff explained to me on the first night. So I was eating like literally food that friends sort of bought from nearby street stalls. Um, but the surgery was very good and the nursing was very good. So I was there for two weeks. Uh, some family came out, some, you know, I was uh, people were around. Then I was put on a, a medevac plane that broke down in Oman. So myself and my mother were then taken by an ambulance across the desert to an Omani hospital where we were left by the air crew for overnight without any phone, working phones or oh. cash. Uh, then back on there and then back into London, back, flew into Luton and then ambulance from Luton straight to King's College Hospital in Denmark Hill where I then spent about four or five weeks nearly dying of pneumonia before I got a, a rehab bed in Aylesbury. Mm. Wow. So it's a very tortuous uh, journey home. It was pretty brutal. And being stuck in my yeah. own in a room in Denmark Hill was pretty brutal. By the time I got out of there, I was pulling probably sort of 18 hours a day on my own mm. without anything that I could, I mean, no, you know, didn't have a voice recognition laptop or anything like that, just uh, staring at a wall or listening to the radio or whatever. So that really wasn't much fun. Mm. So what was the recovery journey like from from there on in? Because I think you, you, you got back to work fairly quickly, didn't you? Yeah, so I mean, I, the truth is I didn't, rec because I wasn't recovering, I wanted to get back to work, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. So um, I was in a private rehab hospital in Aylesbury for a variety of reasons, and which was, it meant that you lacked the social contact of, of an NHS unit, which is which is a, a pity, I think. Um, but I mean, they got me up into a wheelchair. They got me sort of, you know, I taught myself to use voice recognition software. Um, you know, I got back to the stage where, you know, within a couple of months of being there, I was able to write my own emails and, you know, and then it, and then it was a very, very, very torturous process to find somewhere to live in London and get care. Mm. Uh, because I'd been overseas, I didn't have a council in London. Social care in the UK is right. provided okay. through councils and local authorities. So, um, and I didn't wasn't immediately obvious that I had a job either. So there was a process of you know, negotiating my way to, so that I knew I had a job, starting to rent a wheelchair accessible flat that I couldn't live in so that I was paying council tax so that I could then get a social worker. And so the truth is that I could probably have been out of hospital in about February of 2007 and I got out in June. And by the time I got out, I was desperate to get back to work. Plus the way I had negotiated a very bare bones care package for my needs was that I would get about a third of my care was to, was to support me at work. So, yes, I mean, the day after I left hospital, I got back to work, basically. Mm. What capacity? You, you back at work with Reuters? So, I mean, I was in, I mean, I, I, I tried slightly cheekily to nudge them to, to say that I wanted to return to my job in Sri Lanka, partly because I knew that once I said that, they would panic and try really hard to get me back to work in London. How did you anticipate? How did you envisage you would fulfill that role? I mean, actually, relatively it. easily because the, 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 my, my bed sit as part of the bureau was on the ground floor, uh -huh. and I, one would have just needed Sri Lankan carers rather than British ones. I mean, the, the, my condition wouldn't have been any different, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I mean, you would have had a bunch of needs. You know, I mean, I would have needed the same care, and I would have needed a vehicle. But I mean, I was going to need those things wherever I was. Uh, but I mean, I didn't necessarily expect that. But it meant that it it, it kind of it shaped the conversation into we'll get you back to Canary Wharf first, rather than we're not sure whether or not you, you know we can you know the previous conversation i had with hr which was that we're not sure that you'll be able to return to work at all um so i, I got a job with the thomson reuters foundation to start with covering humanitarian news 
um, which was interesting, not quite what I wanted, but was really interesting with some interesting stuff going on then. And then I also got to be a bit of travel to Scandinavia. And then uh, I, then I, I, I essentially basically said to a bunch of teams on the newsroom floor, well, you remember me, I did my traineeship only three years ago. You've been watching what I've done. You know, you've got any space, can I help? So I, that, that got me covering maternity and other shifts with UK Bureau covering British news and with the emerging markets team during the 2008 financial crash. So that you know, essentially allowed me to you know, be useful, demonstrate what I could do and get back to not where I was before because it was gradually became clear that, they, that the jobs overseas were not going to be as open as I would have liked, not least because they were looking for people who could jump on airplanes and you know, move from place to place. But um, at least it allowed me to prove that, you know, I, that I was effective within the agency and that led to a job being as, as a sort of political risk analyst for them in 2009, and I've done various iterations of sort of analysing global affairs jobs for them ever since. And, and that's where you are now. You're still presently with with Reuters. Yes, I mean the, those jobs have changed over time. Uh, so I mean I was political risk correspondent covering the sort of intersection of politics and markets for a while. Uh, I was global defence correspondent for a couple of years. I took a year out to found the think tank, and since then I've been a columnist. Firstly, for a commentary service that we ran, and more recently as a commentator, which is the same job but just with a slightly different reporting line. How has the injury impacted your life going forward and what you planned and wanted to do? Because it seems to me that a lot has changed physically and I, we can only surmise of what you've gone through emotionally, you know, mentally. I, mean, I don't think it has to. I mean, I'm the same person for better or worse in truth. So I think, you know, and many of the problems I face in working out what to do next in life come from the fact that I am still the same person. So I don't think, you know, it, some people ask whether it's taught me empathy. No, it, I don't think it has. I mean, it may have, if anything, it may have shaved a bit of empathy off, but I always think I was pretty empathic beforehand and, 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 and I like to think I still am now. Um, you know, I, the things I like doing that reward me are the same as they were before the injury. Um, so I don't think that has significantly changed. Um, physically and, you know, where I am now, you know, I don't think I would be doing the things I am now in the place I am now, you know, if it, you know, it, in truth, if it hadn't been the injury, I think I would probably have stayed overseas. I mean, the Kajaki mine strike, which killed several members of the parachute regiment, was the first major event of the British war in Helmand, occurred the day after my injury. So if I'd survived even a, probably a handful of weeks longer, given the way reporting lines in Royston, I suspect I would have ended up covering, covering parts of the Helmand campaign, possibly the entire duration of the Helmand campaign. You know, I suspect I would have kept doing that kind of stuff for, for Reuters or someone else, um, you know, either until I chose to stop or something stopped me. So it's possible that your your life hasn't taken on a significantly different direction. Well, I think, I, no, I think it has because I would, have, I would have been overseas doing things. I've been is in the UK doing, you know, I, I mean, I've been doing, doing a different job. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I didn't particularly want to be a London-bound analyst of international uh-huh. affairs. That's not, you know, that's not the job. Oh, cert- you know, certainly with not with very limited travel. That's not the. You know, that's not what I wanted. I know for some people it would be very nice, um, but you know, I like being out. I like talking to people. I like making it making a sort of visceral mm. difference. And I found it a lot harder to do that. And how how have you come to terms with that then? Well, probably I don't. I have. I mean, yeah, it's why. You know, do you struggle with that on a day to day basis? Sort of. You know, no, I just keep on trying to do new things that I'll find yeah. more rewarding. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what got that's what got me founding a think tank. It's what you, know, you know, it's it's what you. Know, it's what nudged me towards, you know, a, a, an attempt to stand as, as a candidate to be an MP in Vauxhall. You know, it's what brought me back to the Army Reserve. You know, so, you know, it, um, and it's what 
still has me kind of looking at what sort of travel and work options exist. So I don't think, I mean, you know, I, 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 I mean, the truth is I haven't accepted that it will stop me doing what I want to do. And I don't think I'm terribly likely to start. I'm always fascinated by the resilience that somebody like you would show in overcoming, you know, this adversity and, and still wanting to plough on and do what you want to do with your life and filling your life with things and other people who just, you know, may crumble or just not be able to to have the mindset that you've got. Do you think that's something that's instilled with you maybe through your parents or your upbringing or you just think it's your makeup? I think I've always been incredibly terrified of what would happen if I stopped. Uh-huh. You know, of the level of social isolation that would come with not doing those things. Um, so I think fear has been a very substantial motivator. I mean, people, you know, I have done brave things by choice. It's one of the reasons I'm paralyzed. Going, carrying on after the injury does not fall under that category. You know, it is, it is really a whole, you know, you know a cold-blooded look at the world and a right, you know, the things you want from life, you know, friendships, relationships, you know, uh, stimulation, you know, people coming into your life, having the conversations you want, being able to talk about the world, being able to influence you. That is all, I, you know, either you keep resourcing that or it stops because the world does not particularly want you there if you're in this position that I am and therefore you cling on by your teeth because that's the only thing that works. So I think, you know, when I've had moments where you just think, I feel like giving up, that panic sets in and it's kind of, yeah, but, but if you do that, just nothing will happen. You know, people won't come and see you. You will drop off the world and you won't be able to keep going. So have you found pleasure and joy and excitement in things that you weren't expecting that you would have done prior to the accident? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I was, I, I mean, this makes me sound like a catastrophically psychologically uninteresting person, but, um, but no, I mean, you know, I mean, I find, you know, yes, I mean, you know, I, you know, I, you know, Live, rediscovered the Globe Theatre and that's nice but you know but I went to the theatre sometimes in Johannesburg and I really liked it because uh-huh. of the way it made me sort of think about the country I was in and yes. that you uh, you know I enjoy getting out in the sun and doing things and feeling sort of you know wind on my face on a nice day somewhere nice but again I mean that that none of that's new um, you know it, it may uh, not be new but it does it sharpen your focus you know in, in, in use the mindfulness for example you know being present in where you are and being no because you can never be present like this because yeah. you're always having to think I mean, you know, that's, that's an overstatement. Of course, you can be present. Um, and there are certain things where you really put effort into that. But the truth is, you're always having to think two or three hours in front of you. When am I going to get lifted into bed? Do I have carers for next week? If I'm out and I need to make a phone call, how am I going to find someone to make a phone call for me? If I need to drink water, is there a bar that I can go to where someone will hold a glass for me? I might, you know, is this the sort of place where that's happened or am I standing into danger by being a bit vulnerable? So the truth is, you're... I mean, to an extent, it's those sort of risk judgments I was talking about when you're a war reporter. Is this road safe? Do I have the right people with me? You know, that if you're like me and you're doing even the most basic stuff, and I'm lucky, I'm a lot more independent than I used to be. So, I mean, you can't see this obviously on a podcast, but my arm, left arm now works and only really came back about three or four years ago. That allows me to press lift buttons on the underground. Not all tube stations have lift buttons on both sides in lifts. If you go into a lift and you let the doors close and the lift button's on the wrong side, you're stuck in that lift until someone retrieves you. They check them every hour, I know, because I've done it. So what, Because you're facing the wrong way? Yeah, because I can only you, hit a button that's on one side. Okay. Got and, you. And, and some lifts are too small to turn around in. I bet you know every lift button in the whole of London Underground by now. More or less. And yeah. you know what? It's done. You can tell by it's, it depends how rich the area is. I mean, it shouldn't be a shop, but yes, Brixton, nice lift, button on one side. Green Park, um, lift, you know, smaller lifts, buttons on two sides. I mean, I'm sorry. 
you, you notice this kind of stuff. But that actually means, but the truth is that the fact you're playing that game continuously yeah. just means that it, it's not that you can't enjoy life and all the pleasures life brings to you, but um, it does mean you're playing you know, a medium term, a short term, medium or long term game about how you simply survive, particularly if you're operating on your own in London with no working hands. How is London situated? How is London geared up for somebody who has Unbelievably your... better than it was when I got out. Uh-huh. Which, um, which was... Uh, 2007. 2007. So we're 12 years on exactly, from there. Which yeah. I know I refer to like coming out of prison and that's what it felt like. Really? Um, so my first six, seven, eight years, I don't want to think about how long it is, I was basically confined to Canary Wharf Plus. I lived near Canary Wharf. I worked in Canary Wharf. I bought people to Canary Wharf to meet them. I could get into a taxi. This wheelchair is too large to fit in a black taxi. My manual wheelchair isn't, so I could you know, get around a bit. But, you know, I, I was never more than, you know, I, I would be basically sort of a, a, a PA would walk me somewhere, then I would meet someone. So I was dating someone over you. Still, you're never on your own. Never on your own in the outside world, anyway. That began to change as I got more independent with an arm recovering three or four years ago. And, I mean, God, that's I mean, it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. I mean, it's, you know, the, you know I, I was able to do stuff in New York on my own when I was, I was doing some work at the time in DC and, and then London. The, the accessible tube network has got better and better. I mean, there now is something that I could refer to as an accessible tube network. That wasn't the case. Some work was done for the Olympics, but realistically, a lot of things, you know, Victoria. So, I mean, here we are, Vauxhall got a lift in 2017. Uh, Victoria got a lift in 2018. So South Kensington will get a lift in 2021 or 2022. Uh, buses. I can take buses on my own now. I've taken bus on my own for the last year or so. And what about getting around out in the streets, just you know, on the pavement and crossroads and different boroughs have different quality pavements, You're right? Um, and you notice that. What do you mean in the way they're maintained? Uh, no, it's in the way it's how well good their drop curbs are. Uh huh. Um, so you can actually you got a smooth ramp that you can get up and down. Yeah, some boroughs are worse than others. I'll, yeah. leave, I'll leave it at that. But right. it. Um, but the truth is, you know, you you notice these things. You know, I'm I'm probably the most disabled person operating independently in London, I suspect. And that's not, I mean, I, I took a, I took one of the fast boats on my own this week for the first time. Previously, I've only done it with a PA. You know, so, you know, I'm lucky. I've, I've got unexpected late recovery, not a lot, but enough to buy a lot of independence. Um, so that's all really good. You know, there's limited amount which you want to do stuff on your own. Obviously, after a while, you know, it's, it's nice doing stuff with people. But the truth is, it's really nice to be able to rip across London on your own to a meeting, to have people doing things that you don't know what they're doing, to have a, a separate personal life. So, I mean, London is better than it used to be. It's probably about as good as really big cities get. I haven't done Tokyo. I haven't done Singapore. Washington, D.C. is not terrible. It's got an accessible metro, although the lift buttons are too small for you to press, which is something that only I would care about. It does sometimes feel like you're only, I mean, it does sometimes feel like, I mean, there are other people as disabled who do, who do stuff, but you, know, you do sometimes feel like you're, you're the only quadriplegic in the village. But I mean, London is London is pretty good. I mean, my you know, my psychogeography of London, the places I roam now, range from you know Canary Wharf, XL Centre, Camden, Brixton, uh, Hammersmith. So that is a and that's that. I mean, I I've got a mobility vehicle, so I can get out of town beyond that, but but only with a driver. But that was an area to be able to operate independently when I was stuck in an area of the Isle of Dogs and and, and Canary Wharf for best part of a decade is it's pretty good, pretty unbelievable. Yeah. And that's on your own. Yes, I mean sometimes yeah. I'll take other people, but yeah. I mean the truth is I don't have to. But you for, could you could do all those I can operate on your own. for periods yeah. of two, three, four hours on my own across yeah. that area. Yeah, that's pretty good. And you tell you're also involved in the army as well, remarkably. So what, what, what's your what's your involvement there? Because I know you're in the I think the uh, was it so sort of well no I was in the, I was in the the uh, the London University Reserve Unit. Uh-huh. Yes. So so that was um, so a lot of my friends went regular, uh, which meant that when after Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. 
uh, the British Army created some reserve roles looking at hybrid warfare changing phase of conflict, you know, information operations. And um, I managed to get myself asked to take one of those roles. So, I mean, it's, you know, without talking too much about it, it's really not that glamorous and not and, and uh, or sexy, but it um, what it's basically involved is taking my sort of journalistic media skill set and training that to particularly young soldiers and also, you know, doing some similar kind of, you know, you know just using, using that skill set to help them think, think way around a, a fast-changing world. And I found that really, really rewarding. I've done... I mean, probably, you know, 100 plus days in uniform in the last three years doing... You actually don your uniform when you go to these uh, uh, sessions? Oh, it depends what I'm doing, Yeah, uh, in truth. But yes, I mean, if everyone else wears uniform, I wear uniform, except unless I'm running training where I'm playing a bunch of civilians, in which case I generally don't, so that, yeah, yeah. but but otherwise, I mean, you know, I, you know my rank is not very significant. I'm a lieutenant, it's about as junior as officer as you can get. Uh-huh. But it must be rewarding for you still to partake in that. And have yeah, and input. it's it's it brought it's brought new social connections, reconnected other social connections. You know, the the army is you know yeah. The truth is that you know the army is very sort of you know sort of cosplay for real. But you know the truth is, if someone looks at me and goes, you know, what the hell is that and what's it doing in my army? Then they look at me and go, oh, they can read my rank slide, they can read my shoulder flash, and they go, oh, it's a lieutenant who does information operations. You know, that's you know, and he, clearly he's paralysed, but someone must have let him in. And, um, you know, and so I found that useful and I found it also, I found it gave me a lot of my self-esteem back. I, I, there's people talk about disability guilt a lot. You, you, and you certainly get it if you're dependent on people for, you know, every time you ask for a glass of water or something, you know, there's an emotional cost to it. Uh, you know, certainly I, I consumed a lot of public sector resources before I was able to pay for myself. So what, just t- touch on that a bit more deeply, if you will, what do you mean by the guilt? You're guilty that you're having to ask other people to do things for you? Well, so there's, there's, there's sort of the macro and the micro, I think. You know, the macro is and was when I was dependent on the state, you know, okay, I'm, you know, burning up a hundred more than a hundred thousand quid a year of public money just to right. keep myself alive. And if I'm not that happy, is it worth it? You know, that money could go to someone else. You know. So that 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 was was a big deal, not least because you had to fight for those resources and that makes you question whether it's worth it. And that's a you know it does not a process that does your self esteem any good. And this was during the Blair Brown government. This was as generous as the welfare state ever got, it was still very, very difficult. And then there's the micro, which is just the, you know, could I have a, you know, if I'm out on my own, then I want to go into a bar, then I have to say, okay, I'll glass of, you know, whatever. And can you take the card out of my wallet? And can you, you know, so you know you're being inconvenient. Now, people will forgive that, providing you're not too inconvenient. And I try and spread the inconvenience around. But, you know, it's, it's you know, if you're meeting up with, you know, you, I mean, I try to avoid making things too inconvenient for other people. And I'm very good at my own logistics. But, um, but it's always a balance. You know, and again, the closer people are to you, the more they're exposed to the the all sort of needs and and, and so forth. So you know, it, the, you know, without the army, sort of really sort of made me take a step back and go, actually, you know what? Society is stronger and better able to defend itself because people like me keep, are kept going. And actually, I do believe that. But I kind of, I the truth is, I think I needed something as overly simplistic as the government coming to you and saying, actually, you're quite useful. Could you do something to go? oh, okay, maybe it probably was worth keeping me going. It's a very, very brutalizing process, fighting for care, um, in truth. You know, it, um, I, I was nearly wound up in an institution twice. I was quite lucky not to be discharged from hospital into a nursing home. And if I hadn't had a financial settlement, I would have been put in a nursing home by my council in 2015. Um, so, you know, th- this actually happened. I mean, possibly I wouldn't because I would have fought like hell, but it's really, really, really unpleasant fighting for your own right to do stuff if you don't feel like it's part of a bigger picture. And because... And were you fighting this fight on your own or did you have others, your family or, you know, advocates for you who are helping you? Or was it pretty much down to you? I mean, up you? to a point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, you do. And if you could... People, 
So when I was trying to get out of hospital, and I mean, every month you're in hospital is, you know, four or 8,000 quid the local council is saving, right? So they'll keep you in hospital as long as you can. We realize that quite quickly. So when I was fighting to get out of hospital, um, you know, I was able to say, right, okay, here are the three people I want you to email or phone. And then that starts to make their life a bit miserable. So they let you out of hospital, basically. You know, so if you, if you, I mean, it's crude, but, um, but effective. You try and get councillors and MPs and, you know, but the truth is you don't actually need that, which is lucky because they often didn't respond. Uh, because all you really need is a bunch of random people who they don't know who they are phoning up and saying, why is PDAP still in hospital? Because we haven't agreed his care package. So providing you've got stuff that's that simple, people will do it. The larger stuff people won't, if that makes sense. You know, it, it, so it's, you know, I was very lucky that a friend of mine spent two days with me helping me learn voice recognition software. Because until I'd done that, I couldn't, once I'd done that, I was independent on the laptop, but I'd never had anyone around enough in hospital to help with that beforehand, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of, you grab, so that's you another grab little those, those mic- bits of support when you can from people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, that's a crucial skill that you learn, you know, a little micro skill that helps you to do your journalism, write your yeah, letters, Yeah, I, mean, the truth is, I, I like to think I had it beforehand, but I mean, it does refine it. Yeah. The, the truth is it also makes you feel sort of guilty about it. You sort of, you, know, you sort of. It sort of weaponizes it to the extent that you know exactly what you're doing and therefore you feel worse about it, if that makes sense, mm. rather than just the standard, oh, could you help me do this because I'm a nice person, which is how most people get through life. Yeah. It's kind of you go, right, okay, I really need, you know, or you can do, I mean, I've, I've tried to get less like this, you know, I really need X, Y, and Z to happen. I really need to make it, you know, to sort of bounce. You know, so, you know, it, it, you know, you have to, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there and it's tiring. and. I'd rather not have to do it. Now, back in May, I should have seen you speak live at TEDx. Yes. But I ballsed up because I turned up there with my, well, I didn't my calendar for weeks and weeks and weeks. I bought the tickets the year before and I put them away, put them in my calendar, turned up for the event with my wife. And we turned up at the uh, South Bank. Was it the Royal Festival Hall? It was, yes. Yeah. I mean, looking around, we think, why is it so damn quiet? There's no, there's no one here. I thought, looked at my calendar, thought, oh shit, I've got the wrong bloody day. <laughs> Well, if you turned up on the right day, there would have been a lot of people there. There were a lot of, yeah, because we went the year before, had a wonderful time, met some great people, some great speakers, and I said to myself, I'm going to come back this year uh, and see Peter Apps and all the other good speakers as, as well. And I ballsed up and got the wrong bloody day and made a bit of a, a, a laugh with it with the uh, the organizers because I sent them you know tweets and mm. Instagram things of us mucking around on the South Bank outside saying we made the wrong day. And they said, oh, don't worry, you know, you come back, you know, we, we give you a refund and don't worry about it. But I should have been there to see you uh, talk at TEDx. Now, how did that come about that you so, were invited I mean, to talk there? So, I mean, I, I, as you mentioned briefly to begin with, uh, about in 2014-15, so four or five years ago, uh, I founded a pop-up think tank called the Project for Study of the 21st Century, which does, you know, during university term times about, you know, between one and three events a month discussing major issues. So uh, one of those, so someone who was connected to the TEDx London team came to one of those events and decided that I would be a good person to be you know, introduced. And I found it a really fascinating process. I would, I would never, I've done quite a lot of public speaking, but never in front of that many people. I mean, it's two, 3,000 people in the festival hall. Um, and also just trying to sort of beat my life and, try, I mean, so what, I, what they wanted me to talk about was 21st century history and my life and the sort of lessons from it. And beating that into a, you know, a coherent story. In, was, was in a really, 15 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I now, now I look at everyone else, I realize how much longer everyone goes. So I did it in about 12 because I actually took their, I actually took <laughs> the actually time. You actually did what you were told. I actually took the time <laughs> in which they gave us me seriously. I now realize I could have happily added another, could have 15, another four minutes of waffle. Uh, but it was interesting because that that got me thinking about my story. I mean, I was actually on an army course when I was just finishing it off. 
kind of put the final touches to it in the back of my vehicle, somewhere on the edge of Salisbury Plain. And it sort of was a really good way of just thinking through, okay, so what has happened both in the world and to me, and how do I think that sort of adds up and that, makes sense? That was really nicely done, really cleverly done, because you, you made the, like, the juxtaposition of the roller coaster of, you know, world history dovetail with your own sort of personal story as well, which I thought was fascinating. I mean, that, the truth is that's how my life feels, right? Because I, you know, I came to London, you know, I said I've been, you know, on and off looking at sort of international affairs since... I was seven or eight, but I've been mainlining it into my brain since for 20 years. And um, while doing various different roles, you know, I was a reservist on 9-11. You know, you, know, was, you know, a bunch of my mates went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, and, you know, and, you know, I was there in Canary Wharf where the banks fell in 2008. You know, um, I was there in the US for the 2012 election. That was remotely interesting. Uh, you know, I, I was there in 2016 just while Trump was rising. I was here for the Euro referendum. You know, so I, I have been around, you know, I mean, the truth is, you know, if what I wanted was a front row seat for history, I've had more of it than I thought would be possible after the injury, though not as much as I would have liked, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Did you enjoy the experience of being up on stage in front of, you know, two and a half, three thousand people delivering your talk? Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting week because I was doing, you know, I, I was doing a very heady, heavy planning assessment for the army like two days earlier so sort of literally sort of the two most challenging things i'd done since the injury within the space of 72 hours it was good i mean i enjoyed it um you didn't appear as i've watched the video back you, you didn't appear nervous at all i don't know whether that's because you've done public speaking before or you were comfortable with your subject matter but public speaking is i mean first thing i memorized it which i which i was had not been the oh, case. did you because i thought yeah, i thought you were referring to no you don't you don't get um you you, you you all you can see is what's on the screen behind you uh-huh which so, is some pictures, which really. is pictures, yeah. and not that many pictures. So no, you have to memorize it. Um, so that was more. I mean, so I mean, I had spent you know like two weeks attempting to memorize it and rewrite it. And oh, I'd be hopeless. <laughs> um, so that was very stressful. But I, but but on the other hand, I knew from when I'd done it the previous night that I I had it down. I mean, I literally was just you know driving to and from Salisbury Plain every weekend. I would just sort of tell you know, repeat it to myself endlessly in the car. So uh, I knew I I knew it was good. I mean, I'm not you know. I am and am not lacking in self-confidence, right? Yeah, I mean, I have survived what I've survived. I think what I have to say is worth listening to as a general rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I still sort of struggle a bit with to what extent, you know, I really count as a proper human being who should be allowed the same sort of rights as everyone else in terms of, you know, jobs, opportunities, and you name it. So it, those two sort of coexist at once, but I don't have a, you know, if someone's going to invite me to speak before a large bunch of people, I don't have a problem doing it. I'll do it professionally. And, you know, you know I mean, I, you know, I, I, I take a level of pride in what I do and you know, and I like to deliver it reasonably well. Yeah. No, it, it was brilliant and it, it sounded like it was really well received as well. So I think the feedback was very positive. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the nice thing was that I know that there were some people, particularly younger people, you know, teenagers with disabilities who really just liked that there was someone on stage talking about something that wasn't just disability. Yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally people sort of late try and label me as a disability activist. I don't think that's the right. You know, I am just someone who's trying to keep going. I mm. think I probably should do some more, Disability activism, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I, one of the reasons why I think, I, I, don't, I really don't think I would be looking at doing politics if it wasn't for the disability. But by and large, I have just tried to keep going and not be defined by it and keep not being defined by it and put all the logistic stuff, you know, the hoists and the PAs and all that stuff into as small a proportion of my life as I can. Sure. Because otherwise they take over the whole thing and, and then that feels... You know, the more other stuff I do, the happier I feel, basically. And oh, so I absolutely. crave other stuff to do. Yeah. So looking forward, I mean, 
you want to get involved in politics? You you wanted to stand for the local um, Vauxhall? Uh, yeah, so MP, I mean, uh, as an MP, so locally? I mean, I I joined the Labour Party uh, just over three years ago when I became a columnist and was allowed outside interests. I mean, it's not. There are some people who want to be MPs, and that's the only thing they want to do. And I don't fall into that category at all. There are plenty of other things I'd like to do. I, you know, the truth is, I would like, uh, you know, I like, I like roles that allow me to meet interesting people and do interesting things and fight for causes that are worth fighting mm. for. And that's one way of doing that. The reason I start, the reason that I decided to go for it was incredibly simple. I discovered that ever since the injury, I've had a real problem being hired by people, hiring managers mainly because hiring managers don't want to take the risk of someone as disabled as me. So my thought, and I'm not sure whether I was right or wrong on this, because it is, was that my ability to be hired by a bunch of people, in other words, a constituency Labour Party, might well exceed my, the, who, none of whom are taking a risk in quite the same way. Right. Um, my, my, you know, so that was one of the reasons why I decided to go for it. The other is that I think if there'd been someone like me doing it when I was injured, it made a huge difference. There was very, very few people aside from Stephen Hawking, who's more disabled. As a role model, you mean? Yeah, I mean, Stephen Hawking is more disabled than me, but he's also so much brighter than me, it wasn't very useful. Otherwise, you know, Christopher Reeve, who died, you know, having not got better. Yeah. And, you know, not a lot else, in truth. That I mean, there were people who had sort of kept going, uh, but no one doing, you know, there were no sort of role models holding a life, doing a life that I wanted, mm. in truth. So, you know, I think there's that. I mean, it is a very bruising process, and I'm not you. What to become a candidate, local candidate? Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, you've got to have a thicker skin than possibly I'm. I mean, I certainly found the process of. I mean, I was announced as a candidate for a couple of weeks before they quite reasonably went for an all women shortlist, um, but I took you know quite a lot of flack and some you know some criticism and some things that I would characterise as being you know, borderline. Where you know, abuse. where did the criticism come from? Which segments of society or was well, it I mean, it's, social it's, media it's or? entirely within the it's entirely within the local labor party really um i mean no one outside cares at this stage what, so what? i'm not i'm not going to get into details beyond no, that. okay uh, but i mean i mean most people were very very nice and mm. not everyone was i think is probably the best way of putting it mm. and i think there was an element to which you know my interpretation would be actually that there's also you know i am a privately educated bloke in his late 30s and and i think you know to Put it charitably, some people saw through the disability or felt that it wasn't, it was something I was maybe exploiting. Right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's not, I would do anything to make this go away. And, and, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is, yeah, believe me, it's been pretty horrible. Is, but it, it, is it something you would pursue again, given an opportunity? Yes. I mean, I, I would like at the very least to stand somewhere. So, I mean, I'm looking for places that are likely unwinnable and therefore don't have candidates. The logistics of standing somewhere you don't live is pretty challenging, if you're mm, me. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, you know, driving in now, hour and a half outside London and or for a six-week campaign, putting yourself in a travel lodge the whole time. Would it have to be on the, on the scale of a, an MP rather than like a local councillor, for example? I mean, I think I would have to know that I had the time commitment available to be a local councillor. Not that I necessarily wouldn't. I probably would if the opportunity came up here uh, where I lived. But uh, because being a councillor is a part-time yeah. role um, and it's having been let down by local councillors in the past, I do think you need to go do it properly. The truth is, it's something, if I hadn't been asked back to the army, then it would probably, it could potentially have filled a slot like that. Uh, but the truth is that actually in inner London, Labour Party council places are fought with the ferocity of an MP selection battle. So um, given that I've, for a variety of reasons, like you know, moved around the last three or four years, 
you know, I think that would, you know, I mean, you, I don't, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think I'd find it easier to run as a councillor here, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm also, there are also other things like London Assembly and so forth. Yeah, you know, I, you know, perhaps I could, I have, I, I, I do not put the effort into factional Labour Party politics that you probably need to get on someone's list, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now that doesn't mean that I couldn't, although, you know, I mean, I, this isn't, you know, I, I, that, that is not where my appetites lie. You know, I think, you know, you know, if I got the option of a decent sort of Tory leaning marginal where I thought I could, you know, where, where I thought I could win over a long period of time, um, then I would take it. And I think, or I might take it. I mean, it, it, the truth is I would have to stop doing everything else I was doing. Sure. And I would have to live there. Um, which is which I might well be open to, but it, um, yeah, the, the level of commitment it requires to get into frontline politics like that is very, very, very great, and um, it's not the only thing I yeah. want to do with my life. Do we have any examples of disabled politicians in currently sitting MPs? Well, we have Jared O'Meara, uh-huh. uh, who beat Nick Clegg for Sheffield, then never really turned up, didn't give a speech for two years, and had a nervous breakdown. Yes, so he's the one who's just exactly. resigned his position. So, which he? I yeah. think is yeah. seen as a example of how you don't do this well. Right. I mean, there are examples. Uh, Canada has had two quite disabled quadriplegic MPs, um, one, at least one of whom became a minister. Japanese just elected two people, at least one of whom is considerably more disabled than me. Uh, Norwegians have. Uh, I mean, there is the Irish had a paraplegic MEP, but he was the MEP who voted least. So I think. I mean, the truth is, I think there is a probably is an awkward conversation to be had about the level of representation disabled MPs sometimes give. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, we also have people like David Blunkett, who is you know. Uh, yeah. So you know, it you know, if I the truth is, if I was hired to do that job, then I would you know do it even if I had to be dragged into the chamber on a, on a stretcher, um, and or stand down when I felt that I couldn't do it. Yeah. And you know, I I think I've you know the truth is, you know, I can. I know my disability and myself well enough, and I could make. I believe I could make it work. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with with questioning people on that. And I think the one thing I would say is that I found that standing, even for a couple of weeks here, pushed my mental health more than I anticipated. I'm, you know, I think I'm a pretty strong personality, uh, but I found that it brought up not just a lot of issues, but probably all my issues about everything. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think. If I was to do it again, I would want to make sure that I had the sort of support network there to be able to do it. And even, and the truth is, again, it would be less of a, you know, I don't know if it's a surprise, but, you know, I'm, I'm very glad I've had the experience and I've learned a lot from it, I think is probably what I would say. So if we set politics aside for one moment, how do you see your sort of future going forward? What, what do you want to get involved with? Well, I mean, I think the question is whether I keep doing a sort of portfolio life where I write a column for Reuters and some stuff for other people and do some politics and do some part-time soldiering or whether I commit to, you know, something more. Uh, or whether I'd travel. I mean, then the truth is I'll probably, I'd like to think my future contains all of the above. Yeah. It's really about order. So, you know. Eat. What about writing novels or books or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've written two reasonably long form things. To, so both 30,000 words, both for Amazon Kindle singles, which is where Amazon basically edits it for you and promotes it. One of which was on reporting hemorrhagic fever in um, Angola in 2004, 30,000 words, just a piece about that. And one of which was was a uh, biography, well, a, an account of Winston Churchill's six months in the trenches of the Western Front in 1916, okay. um, which paradoxically I wrote before I knew that I was being dragged back to the army. So, I mean, I've, I've done those. I think I am at my least effective when I'm stuck on a room on my own. 
if that makes sense. Yes. So um, if I've got other stuff around, I can write. If I if I'm in an a period of time where I've got less stimulation, I find it harder. I ha- in terms of a longer form thing, I would. I don't think I've reached the end point of my story yet, where I want to write the story I've just recounted. You, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at some stage, I will or might. Because as I was reading some of your blogs and articles and getting the timeline and the story in my head, it it felt very much like there was like almost like a film structure to it somehow. Like I'd possibly seen the screenplay somewhere before. It, it felt like there's a genuine, you know, full-color story there. Yeah, I mean, the truth is there's enough written already that I one option would be to pull together a collection of things I have written. Mm. And actually that, you know, which is a mixture of accounts that I've written you know, news stories I've written about the world that actually are not are not an interesting account of everything. And I suppose one option would be to try and just compare that into a into a thing. Yeah. As to whether there'd be any appetite for that, I'm not sure. But I mean, but it might be the might in some ways it might be the easier way of doing it. Or I sit down and write properly. But you know, otherwise, you know, you know, I, there are things I wouldn't mind writing. And you know, I wrote half a novel last year. It would need to be rewritten, but uh, which was basically essentially about a you know, trying to imagine what a confrontation between Russia, China, and the West would look like in about three or four years' time. You know, <laughs> Dread to think. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think it's a, it's a, I mean, I think it's a useful thought experiment. Uh, so that might be something that I break out at some stage. But it really depends what's kind of next. Yeah. You know, and and you know, it, you know, we, yeah, we'll just we'll just see. I think. Out of interest, Frank Gardner was a, a journalist, wasn't he, for the BBC, who got injured uh, in a so, war zone? So Frank was shot in Saudi Arabia yeah. literally the same week I went overseas to South Africa. So August of 2004. And his book about being injured came out the summer that I broke my neck. So actually two years later. So I remember reading the sort of Sunday Times serialized version when I was on leave just before I'm about to break my neck. And then someone gave me the audio book to play in hospital, which I listened to partly because I was trying to work out how he managed to get himself out of hospital. Um, <laughs> So I, when I first spoke to Frank when I was in hospital, and someone introduced me to him, and I phoned him up and ex- you know, explained who I was, what I'd done, and how disabled I was. And you can sort of hear his voice drop, and you could just hear him think, Christ, this guy's screwed. There's absolutely no way he can live the sort of life he wants. And I'm not going to be the person to tell him that. And I've stayed in touch with him since we ran into each other, and he sort of kept... Yeah, I had so no idea you were. I just, I just so assumed you might... You, so, yeah, you we, we bump into each other, and yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, he's done very well, and the truth is that the fact he's done that has made some things I do easier. His life is easier than mine in the sense that he's a lot less disabled. He's also, you know, had a lot more senior job when he was injured, which helps, or at least a lot more high-profile job. Mm. But, no, I mean, he's done, you know, he's done very well. He's got arms that work, hands that work. He can sort of, and, you know, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a lot more independent. He doesn't require care. He's entirely self you know, he can travel on his own, you know. So there's a whole bunch of kind of stuff like that, which you know, none of which I'll ever be able to do. But yes, I mean, we kind of keep sort of, you know, eyes on each other. In. Yeah. Well, I think I've uh, detained you quite long enough. So um, it's, it's time to wrap up. So thank you very much indeed for your time and your, your story and your honesty and uh, expressing, you know, how things have been for you before, during and after. Because it, it, it's not an easy story, but you tell it honestly. And as I said, with a good deal of integrity as well at the beginning. So before we wrap up, there's two things. Uh, there's a question I ask all my guests, and that is to tell us of a couple of places in London that they know, like, you know, could be secret places, could be somewhere you like to visit, a museum, a cafe, a restaurant, somewhere that is perhaps personal to you. Are, are, is there one or two places that you could suggest? I mean, one would definitely be Borough Market. Um, I lived very close to it. I lived very, fairly close to it for 
the first for 2016 to 18, which was my first two years of being properly independent in London. Mm-hmm. And I was also there when it was attacked. So that, um, you were actually in the market, not in the time. market, but I was you know, only a few hundred. You, you, okay. you. Li- I interviewed a couple of guests who were there uh, involved in the attack while it was taking place on the. I bridge. mean, I was, I was lucky enough not to be caught up in the attack, yeah. but yeah, the truth is that attacking somewhere that I like, you know, yeah. tends to make you a bit more defensive about sure. it. And I was, and I was very struck by the resilience. Is I mean, the, you know, I think one of the questions lots of people ask themselves is sort of, you know. Are modern Londoners as resilient as they were during the Blitz? And my take of the borough market attack is yes. Why are you even bothering to ask? You know, it, um, you know, so I think that was the first time that I sort of, you know, that I, that I really sort of went, okay, yeah, no, you know, I mean, London can take it, it being, meaning whatever, you know, pretty much anything that can be thrown at it. Setting the resilient aspect aside on borough market, what is it that you, you like about the market itself? I mean, it is that, it's that combination of sort of rough and readiness and being really nice. I mean, you know, the truth nice is. Cheese. You, no, well, I mean, you've got you know, you, you know, my favourite restaurant there managed to fight off the attackers in about three minutes, throwing bottles and tables at them. Yeah, that you know, and it's still a really good restaurant. So it you know that 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 you know, the, the truth is that inherently appeals. Uh, but you know, it, it's got you know, it's one of these you know, it's one of these bits of London where you can feel the past, yeah. but you can also feel the present. Yeah, I mean, I, I would extend that to the whole of the bank side. I think the bank side here in the globe is is the same. And I mean, the second the second might well be around sort of you know, the sort of you know, unglamorousness of the Vauxhall bus station and tube station because the truth is when I came here my aim was to try and spend a year of sort of living somewhere that didn't feel like Canary Wharf or or you know I, I could get a larger flat that allowed me to sort of be a bit more independent from the carers and so forth uh, but also take buses take tubes do, do the sort of you know do live a life that felt more like the sort of life that ordinary people have or that I have when I was you know when I was a normal person and and the truth is, I think it's it's sort of largely, you know, you know that this is, you know, when I was in Bankside, I was I was exploring, but you know, here I here I sort of feel okay. I mean, I'm you know, I'm almost like a sort of proper Londoner here. You know, I mean, I get the tube to places. I'm meeting someone in Brixton this evening. I'll get the tube. You know, I can get uh, you know, if someone wants to meet me in Camden, I'll get the bus. You know, it it, and I can do it on my own. That's you very know, so, co- so very I, grounding I think, for you. So I think there's an element to that sort of you, know, and I think that you, know, and then you sort of go. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Last last year, I went back to the f- house I left in Fulham when I went overseas in two thousand and four. So you know, I walked out the door with my rucksack, got on a tube, you know, got on a plane, never came back. And I said, you, and you said, I sat outside it, but about this time of year, and you said, ooh, that was quite a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, that that you know that, you, and you can sort of feel. The sort of sting of, you know, you know, I mean, well, that would be what 14, 15 years, mm. you know, that have been a journey back to, you know, being at the stage where, yes, you know, I feel actually I am a, you know, a, a borderline independent human being with agency. And that, you know, that's quite something. Thank you very much for that. How can people find you if they want to find out more about you, say, on social media or so your website? So I'm on Twitter at Pete underscore apps. That's probably the best way of finding me. Yeah, that also links to the, the think tank that I run. Um, so Twitter is probably the easiest. There's also uh, pete-apps.com where I've, I've got some writing about this. And again, that also links to uh, my Reuters writing. Uh, so yeah, and otherwise just put my name into Google News and you'll find whatever I've written most recently. There is another Pete Apps, it must be said, who is the best housing journalist in the country and does really good stuff on Grenfell Tower. So I'm not him. I'm the one with less hair and more of a wheelchair. <laughs> and you're also the one who did the uh, TEDx London talk as I'm well. I'm the one who did the TEDx London so talk. So you can check that out because that's only been released fairly recently. So 
boost the numbers, the listening numbers for that as well. Well, once again, Pete, it's been an absolute treat to have you you on the show. Thank you very much indeed for your time and uh, your story and keep up the good work. And uh, we'll keep listening and watching out for you as you go Thank you very much. It's been been a privilege. Thank you very much. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.